Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast Pressurized, the short, punchy version of our full-length shows. So if you want to get right to the scientific point, this is the place to be. If you really enjoy the topic and you think, I'd like to know more, just match the episode number and you'll be able to find the full-length episode in our feed. And now, to get right to the point. We have been talking about seamounts, hydrothermal vents, whale falls, deep biosphere, all as interesting ecosystems in the deep sea. And there was one that we wanted to talk about because it's big, uh, or at least uh, abundant, but not necessarily natural, and that is the wonderful world of shipwrecks. So we thought we'd have two guests on today, two people that we know and worked with before, to cover two different aspects of shipwrecks. And one is more of a, with the human element in there is to, you know, the history is to where ships are, what, what makes shipwrecks important, and how you find them, the technology involved in actually going out and finding them, and why there's value in finding them in the first place. And the second guest is thinking more about the life history of that shipwreck, what it does, what does it do to the environment, what lives on it, and what happens after that. Because we tend to think about them as, oh, ship sunk, and that's the end of the story. But it's not. It's almost the big beginning of a new chapter in the ship's life. And so our first guest today is... Leighton Raleigh. There you go. Pick up the phone. Let's phone Leighton. So today we have the award-winning Leighton Raleigh, who has 20 years' experience supporting science operations at sea. He's supported over 120 science expeditions from the tropics to the edge of the ice sheets, and his main focus is advancing scientific knowledge of the oceans. But in doing so, he has found and documented dozens of historical shipwrecks, and he's currently working for Rev Ocean, but he's also worked with Schmidt. And before that, he worked on NERC vessels in the UK, which is where I first came across them many, many, many years ago. So... Welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, Leighton. Thank you. So in terms of finding a shipwreck, there must be a long road between picking up a history book and getting the camera down there for that all-important shot of the of the name of the ship. So can you talk us through how you go about finding a wreck when you don't know exactly where it is? It can be a really complex process. It can actually be quite a simple one as well. In, in some cases, we have photos of a ship sinking with land in the background. And you can match up that terrain and go out and map. And like with cases with petrol and the USS Ward, you could see the terrain in the background. So that was a relatively easy find. Mm. But for the ones out in the deep ocean, there's a lot more work. And the older they get, the harder it becomes. Because, you know, navigation nowadays, we all rely on GPS and equipment like that. But back in the old days where they had sextants and, uh, you know, celestial uh, positioning, which would give you several to a dozen miles fix. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty. So you have to trawl through um, the history books, find as much information. And, you know, there's places like Kew Gardens, the National Archives in London, which has thousands of, uh, if not millions of records on shipwrecks and stuff. So it's a great place to start um, trawling the archives and putting all that information together and building a picture of, you know, what happened. Even things like what was the weather that day, going off to meteorological records and looking at current information from modern sources and as far back as we can to figure out, you know, the standard weather in an area. And even um, on some of the more uh, recent wrecks we've been doing, we've actually been applying mathematics, things like Bayes theory for looking where the most likely location of a wreck is and putting all that information almost into a mathematical formula to figure out where something is and the chances of finding it 
if it's there. So, you know, there's a lot of research that goes in and trying to make sense of all the data. Once you've narrowed it down to so you know roughly where it, where it's going to go and you, you get the research vessel and off you go, where, where do you start in terms of survey and honing in on the exact position? Sometimes we use Bayes theory, which will run thousands of simulations based on the information that's available and figure out the more probable location of where the um, ship is. And if it's there, can we find it with the technology that we've got? And then we'll plan the survey around the areas where it's most likely to occur. Now, as I say, we use base theory, but sometimes you just go on a gut feeling, you know, where all the information points to a location. Sometimes it's just like, oh, let's just start here. You know, there's nothing better than hitting the wreck on the first go, like with the Terra Nova. I think we found that in 40 minutes, even though she was 20 miles away from where she went to be. And there's this amazing uh, reaction when you find it that early on. But some searches, they're just not in the right place. Most of the search work is done using acoustics, right? You wouldn't necessarily just yeah. go straight with a camera and get an ROV down there because the field of view is so small relative to the expanse of the sea. Yeah, you know, in the last 20 years since we've started going to a sea, there's different methods of finding wrecks. And we have found them with hull-mounted systems. And a big battleship, you know, when we hit it with sound, it reflects that. It's a big metal target. So, you know, we get this information back that, hey, there's a big metal shape on the seabed. The deeper it gets and the rockier the terrain, if it's muddy, if it's sandy, it really causes issues there. So, you know, we couldn't resolve some of the wrecks a lot deeper. So then we use other tools like autonomous vehicles, which are like torpedo-shaped devices that have mapping systems, and they take the sonar closer to the seabed so we can resolve those wrecks on the seabed. It's like a torch, really. If you held it a meter above a table, you can illuminate the whole table. But if you bring it closer, you can really increase that intensity and see all the scratches on the table. And that's really what an AUV does. It gets closer to the seabed and we can see more detail. So there's wrecks that we can't see from a ship. We can see when they're lying on the seabed using this AUV. But they take longer to work, so you have to invest more time in the search. Are there like scientific rules to when you can say for certain that it's definitely that particular ship? Do you have to get that shot of the ship's name or the call sign or something? Or can you go entirely on acoustics and say, is the shape distinct enough? You wouldn't. I mean, especially, I guess, with the Taffy um, ships, there was so much going on there, you wouldn't be able to resolve them. In most cases, you want that. It's a terrible term, money shot of like, you know, when you see Petrol's earlier work of the Indianapolis, the number 35 on the bow to indicate that is the Indianapolis. And like, you know, the name like Johnson on the ship or its pennant number. Or if there's no other ship like it in the area, the Terra Nova, 57 meters long, wooden hull, wreck from Dundee, she's a whaler. You know, you can categorically say this is that ship. Yeah. But you really need to be able to prove it. And there has been a number of mistaken wrecks where they've even actually gone down and the ship's very similar to another one and misidentified them to be corrected yeah. later. Is there some sort of international body of shipwrecks where you go to them and say, I want you to register this because we've found this and therefore it's somehow on a record? In a lot of cases, for some of the merchant ones, you know, there's, there's millions of wrecks in the sea. So you might find older ships, which will generally just come out, hey, we found this shipwreck. We don't know what it is. For military ones there's a whole like process where you know if you went out and found a british uh, world war ii ship in uh, international waters you would contact the admiralty and the naval historical branch and inform them that you found that wreck and there are stringent rules for operating there's strict no touch policies you can't take pictures of anything that could be clothing or show where there was a body lying you can't penetrate inside a wreck yeah. and that's a war grave so there are laws that protect it but is it easier to find a wreck in shallowish water or deep water? Because the size of the debris field, which gives you a bigger target to get eyes on, but it's only big because it's spread out because it's fallen over such a huge depth. 
Yeah, that's a good thing. You look at like the Titanic's debris trail there and some of the ones, I mean, when you look at Hood, Hood got blasted apart on the surface and then that debris trail filters down. So there is a case and it depends on the tool that you're using. I think deep water can be a lot easier. How many wrecks are there? I read somewhere that it could be in excess of 2 million. Yeah, I think it was the UN report said there's around 2 million, you know, and that's from inferring, you know, what we just stumble across, what we know is, is out there. So there are millions of wrecks, and sometimes you do just stumble on them in everyday operations, and you have no idea what they are. You think little fishing boats from 200 years ago, there's just timbers on the seabed, and no one knows what they are, or trading ships that just vanished into obscurity. Everyone likes the famous ones, like the Lexington, the Indianapolis, the Johnston, things where you can tie them to tangible, usually sometimes recent history, although not always, you know, people like the Viking wrecks and stuff. But like, you know, some of the ones which have become popular, like the Johnson recently, because there's so much written about those battles. We had survivors up until recently who can give personal accounts mm. and seeing the wreck in a way can give closure to a lot of people. Yeah. You can also follow bit by bit when the ship was hit, where it was hit, how it was damaged, you know, the reaction to that. And it's really a window into the past in a lot of cases. And then for us as biologists, you can go down and you can see colonization of the wreck or in some cases, I think like Iron Bottom Sound, how that wreck is damaging the environment around there through leaching of chemicals from munition, oil. Yeah. They are interesting windows into the past, but also into biology in some cases or human impact. This is one of these things, isn't it? Because we always think of shipwrecks almost in a sort of romantic type of way, yeah. but it's still man-made litter, if you like, for want of a better term. It's still something that shouldn't be there. But as you say, sometimes they become artificial reefs. Yeah. Sometimes they're full of oil and petroleum and all these other things, which sooner or later, as the over the lifetime of the wreck, is, is going to come out at some point. Yeah. So out of interest, right, what wreck is on top of your list right now? I would like to find the wreck of HMS Glorious, a British aircraft carrier that was sunk during the evacuation of Norway. It's one of Britain's worst loss of life with over 1,500 killed mm-hmm. on board three ships. So they were sailing back from Norway. Basically, the Germans had invaded the Low Countries. France was about to fall and Britain realized that it needed to consolidate its forces in the UK against a potential German invasion. So they were evacuating Norway. And for some unknown reason at this moment, we kind of know what it is now, the aircraft carrier Glorious was allowed to return with just two destroyers. And on the way back, she just happened to encounter two German battleships that sunk them. And it was a massive loss of life. And there's so many unanswered questions in how this happened and what happened during the battle, why she wasn't flying aircraft, Mm. why she was where she was, that I would like to find that and see the state of the wrecks. Yeah, there's them. There's lots of other historic wrecks associated with older battles, but it takes a lot of time and investment to do the research into finding something. <laughs> like you, I've got a day job as well, which is supporting science. That's the problem, isn't it? It'd be nice just to go around and find all these things, but uh, yeah. in the current funding climate, that's not an easy thing to get away with. You know, this, the, the, the archaeology doesn't have the kind of money. Mm-hmm. You'd see going expeditions with some of the most expensive gear you can think of. Yeah, when you look at a ship and how much, you know, we're talking, say 40 or 50,000 a day with the right equipment on there yeah and uh some of these you don't know where they are so you add in a 20-day survey or longer and that price really starts getting up there you could add a caveat of we might not find it yeah it is a high (laughs) risk thing and especially for ones where they just have an intrinsic historical value you know you can see there's organizations that go out there and find gold when it funds itself or you know you look at something you say there's 600 million in gold on there and we think we can find it in 20 days, then it becomes, you know, effective. If it's just for the historic value, is it worth it? In some cases, yes. 
but it's trying to convince someone that they should part with a few million to go and do it. No, I just think it's fascinating from a philosophical question about how we use the sea and what's in it and how much we should disturb it and so on. But when I heard the number of potential shipwrecks being something in the region of two million, you're like, wow, I never thought about that before. Yeah. And I had the same feeling when someone showed me a confidential map of where all the known munitions dumps are, even just around America. You're like, my God, there's so many. Yeah. I mean, so many just piles of bombs and missiles and chemical weapons. And oh, that yeah. never really gets into the public consciousness about what the sea has been used for. I think, yeah, to a lesser extent. And I mean, you've dived to the deepest parts of the planet. I mean, there's a SR-71 in the Mariana Trench that they um, recovered. I think removed some of the sensitive stuff off and then threw back in. So I think at that point they were thinking it's not going to be that easy to get down there. But there is an SR-71 that got dumped out there. Well, Lane, that's been absolutely brilliant. And thanks very much for joining us on the Deep Sea Podcast. Not a problem. And thank you. It's been a pleasure. And so today we have our second guest of the episode, and it's Laurie Johnson. She's a microbiologist and research and development specialist at Ground Effects Environmental Services in Canada. And she's an expert in the microbial communities and their degradation of shipwrecks and other submerged artifacts. Much of her research is centered around the wreck of the Titanic, but she's also dived to numerous other wrecks, including the Bismarck and Titanic sister ship, the Britannic. And to talk us through the life history from the point that a ship goes from being a ship to a shipwreck, she joins us now from the incredibly landlocked Canadian city of Regina. So, hi, Laurie. Hi, how are you today? I'm good. So, firstly, let's assume we're talking about relatively large modern metal ships. And we're often familiar with the stories of ships like Titanic up to the point that it sinks. But you talk us through what happens after it sinks. Well, after it sinks, most of the ships that I've looked at are quite deep, but they immediately become areas for wildlife in the ocean. If you're looking at Titanic, it's quite deep, so it takes quite a long time for bacteria, which I look at specifically, but to sort of take root and begin to inhabit the shipwreck itself. Obviously, these bacteria are found naturally in the environment, so they begin immediately, but we don't see incredible degradation until many years after, 25, 30, 50 years after, is when you can visually see the bacteria at work and the outcome of biological degradation of these wrecks. Is there a noticeable difference between shallow water wrecks and deep water wrecks in terms of how quickly the microbial community start to break it down? Uh, yes, there's a huge difference. If you take, yeah. say, Britannic, the types of biological growth on that are significantly different than, say, Titanic or Bismarck. In the shallower wrecks, there's much more competition from biological entities that also feed on bacteria. But those are not necessarily found on the deep wrecks, simply because those biological entities just can't survive at, say, four Mm. kilometers below the surface. So the bacteria on the shallower wrecks are sort of outcompeted for resources on those wrecks. And so the microbes are, are breaking this down. What would they be doing before the ship arrived? Do they sort of sitting around dormant and they suddenly just flourish because suddenly they've been introduced to a huge chunk of steel? Or how does that work? The microbes are naturally found in the environment simply because there's elements of iron and sulfur and manganese and magnesium in seawater, in various sediments and rocks. So they're found throughout the ocean environment itself. But when they're given a shipwreck, 
it's almost like walking up to a buffet because all of these elements are readily available. So they quickly coat the ships around the ship. And I mean, obviously, these bacteria are also on the ship on the surface because it floats Mm. on the water. But when it sinks, they have access to just a, a huge buffet of elements that they need to survive. So one of the words I learned from having met you on a Titanic job some years ago is the word rusticles. I've never come across rusticles before. What's a rustical and why are they so interesting? Rusticles is a term that was first coined with Titanic and it basically is what it sounds like. It's a rusty icicle type structure, sort of stalactite type structures Mm. and they're created through the microbial degradation of wrecks and they're found globally as far as we know. So it's basically just a term that easily describes a visual of what it is. So they're made up of the bacteria who mine the iron and the manganese and all these elements out of the steel and aluminum and create these homes for themselves, if you will. But they're so much more than that. It's a beautiful structure inside. They're extremely detailed inside this rustical, this outer casing. And there's all sorts of tunnels and crevices for water flow and gas exchange and nutrient uptake. They're extremely detailed. I always thought they kind of make it look like the wreck's melting. That's the general impression when you see these things. If anyone goes and Googles a photograph of like the bow of Titanic, for example, you'll see that it looks like a wax model that's been too close to the heater. (laughs) That's the best way I can explain what a rustical looks like. It does almost look like it's melting, but the process to build these structures over time is extremely detailed. And they're just a beautiful example of how bacterial life on some of the deepest wrecks in the world really become the dominant organism down there. And they look like wax, uh, potentially, but they're not solid. Their structures are extremely delicate as well. So they're sort of fragile, but for the environment that they're in, they're quite sturdy. And so from a biological point of view, we can learn a great deal from shipwrecks because they provide a hard substrate that perhaps might not have been there. And we often have very precise dates as to when the wreck arrives. So we can do lots of interesting things like look at colonization rates or growth rates. And because of the nature of, of a shipwreck, you can actually go back and revisit specific individuals over time, which is, is, is something that's just harder to do when you're just on a, on a ridge system or an escarpment or something like that. So there's loads of things we can learn from a biological point of view. But what can we learn from exploring deep wrecks that we can learn from from an engineering perspective? Well, all engineers are taught that corrosion is a chemical process that breaks down steel and that, and the seawater really accelerates the corrosion aspect. But from a biological perspective, the deep wrecks really have a very significant impact on the biological degradation of it. Mm. We've looked into the, as you said, growth rates and that, but the bacteria found in these steel racks are very good at manipulating charges. And we've just sort of started the long-term examination of how these manipulative charges aid biological growth because bacteria are sort of living entities, they are capable of manipulating these charges for their own benefit, meaning easier or more quickly are they able to 
degrade these steel shipwrecks, which make the degradation part of it, the as far as engineering goes, the collapse or bringing the wreck further to degradation quicker. So they've done a very good job of degrading the ship faster than expected. So that leads to, of course, collapse of things like decks or masts or outer shells. So they seem to be doing it both inside the wrecks and outside the wreck. Uh So it speeds up the process of degradation. And so a wreck like Titanic, for example, is probably the easiest one to visualize, but from the point in which it landed on the bottom, other than the rusticles, has it actually changed much? You know, have decks fallen through and and stuff like that, or is it still largely what it looked like 100 years ago? No, the wreck of Titanic has changed considerably since the sinking. Obviously, we only have a, a picture from when it was first discovered to present, but decks have collapsed and we have been able to predict through examination of the biological degradation the collapse rate to a certain extent. Mm. But because it's happening from both the inside and the outside, it's very difficult to gauge how quickly it's going to collapse simply because we don't have a, a good understanding of the rate of degradation from the inside. We can visually see and test on the outside, but very few experiments have been able to penetrate the wreck and get a firm understanding of that degradation. But if you look at the bow section of Titanic, the back where the sections broke apart, the decks have collapsed in on themselves and will continue to do so. And so if I were you, myself and colleagues would probably open some sort of wager as to when the bow is going to collapse. Uh, (laughs) You know, that's a good way to make money. Put $20 in each, winner takes all, I guess the year. Would that be something you would expect to see within 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? I I, I honestly have, have no idea at what point you would someone would go back in a submarine and go, oh, uh, and the whole thing is just sort of like leaning over or, or, or caved in on itself. So what is it that is collapse? Is it all the decks have collapsed? Because that would be probably within the next 50 to 75 years wow. because just the rates of degradation, because there's really nothing there that can sort of outcompete the biological degradation, if you will. Yeah. So it will end up being just sort of a U-shaped structure on the seafloor with the decks collapsed in on itself. How long is that wreck going to be affecting the surrounding area for? Because oh. that's a, such a huge chunk of material there. Some of these older wrecks go back hundreds, if not you know thousands of years. I understand that there's a certain amount of lucky preservation involved in some of the older ones, but this is a big hunk of steel. That's going to be surely there for hundreds of years, right? Oh, definitely. It yeah. will uh, eventually go back to nature, which is just an iron blob on the floor. But because it's created such a, a habitat for such a diverse range of deep sea life, it's going to be hundreds, if not a thousand years for degradation. It won't look like Titanic, yeah. but it'll be around for a while. Do you have any idea of how far in the horizontal plane the 
is it having an effect? I mean, is, is all the stuff getting buried into the sediment surrounding it? And if you have to take a core sample from 50 metres, 100 metres, whatever it may be, can you still pick up signatures from the wreck? Oh, yes. Yeah? I think that the furthest they've got is, I think it was five to seven kilometres away. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a huge area that is being Whoa. inhabited, if you will. It's creating its own little microbiome in there and just living quite happily off of the feast of elements of the steel and <laughs> everything else that Titanic had in it. It's just such a bizarre, in terms of, you know, sort of deep sea habitats, wonderfully surreal almost, you know, that this thing is just being slowly eaten alive by the smallest things in the sea. And the fact it's having an effect like six, seven kilometers downstream is, is it's just incredible. There's nothing quite like it in the natural world. You know, it really brings together the idea that, you know, nature really does rule all. Yeah. Is there any other interesting facts or anecdotes about these big wrecks you'd want to share with us? There's so much work that still needs to be done. We have put long-term experiments on a number of racks, and these are sort of years to determine the rates of growth and types of growth and that sort of thing. But I'd really like to try to meld some genetics in there, some more multifaceted expeditions, if you will. It's very poignant, right, yeah. that this is what the power of these microbes really have in the overall impact in society, right? There's corrosion everywhere, and how much of it is biological, how much of it is chemical, or is it actually a combination of the two? Mm. It's just saying, I love this idea that it's almost like nature is just undoing your mistakes. It's like, this isn't supposed to be here, and there's all these little critters just making it go away. Well, and it will, and it'll just be sort of a, a orange smudge on the bottom of of the ocean yeah but nature is very good at removing or at least using what they find there to survive but eventually to break it down into the iron ore that made titanic in the first place well that's all the questions i've got for you today laurie i just want to say thank you very much for coming on the deep sea podcast and that's that's truly fascinating i appreciate this thank you well, thank you very much Hello again. This is oceanographer-explorer Don Walsh, and my uh, sea story for today is about a Soviet cruise ship named the Orlova. She was built in Yugoslavia in 1976 for the USSR and was one of eight similar ships, all named for famous stage and screen personalities in the Soviet Union. Lyubov Orlova was a film star in the 30s. In 1999, she was converted to a, an expedition cruise ship. Orlova began expedition cruises to the Arctic and Antarctic in the late 1990s. In 2000, I was on board as an expedition staff member for a 12-day expedition charter to the Antarctic. Now, I've been to sea for several years on all kinds of ships, and as a matter of curiosity, I had a good look around Orlova. did not like what I saw. Orlova was not in good condition, and this is when I gave it the nickname Glub Glub Orlova. However, we successfully completed our 10 days in the Antarctic area and headed back home across the infamous Drake Strait. I've made this 600-mile crossing several times, and it's notorious as a rough part of the world ocean, and this time the weather was particularly bad. Technically, Orlova had stabilizers, but they did not seem to be working, and we rolled heavily. Arriving intact into port at Ushuaia, Argentina, we were quite happy to bid farewell to the Glub Glub Orlova. Over the next few years, 
Orlova got handed down through a series of expedition and charter operators before she ended up in St. John's, Newfoundland in 2010. And it was there that her cruise ship career ended. The Canadian authorities seized Orlova for unpaid debts, such as fuel, port costs, and crew salaries. The crew hadn't been paid in five months. The amount due was close to a quarter million dollars, and the owners, as well as the cruise charter company, could not pay, and Orlova was abandoned. And there she remained alongside the pier for the next two years, slowly dying. Eventually, the crew was repatriated back to Russia, and onboard maintenance had ceased. Attempts were made to sell her, but her condition was so poor that restoration to service was judged to be unaffordable. In uh, 2012, she was sold for scrapping in the Dominican Republic in the Caribbean. In January 2013, Olova was towed out of harbor by a two-small tugboat just clear of St. John's Harbor. The tow line broke, and the unmanned ship started drifting in the direction of some offshore oil platforms, many miles away, of course. At this point, the Canadian government chartered a more substantial towing vessel to reestablish the tow, but then that tow line also broke. However, by that point, she had drifted far enough off the coast that it was clear she wasn't going to be a hazard to the platforms. And by this time, she was also outside Canadian territorial waters, and the government decided that's it. They're not going to make any more efforts to uh, capture the ship. Of course, the ship's new owner had the option of hiring a proper tow vessel, but that was not done, and the unmanned expedition ship drifted off into the North Atlantic. Glub Glub Orlova became a ghost ship manned only by a large population of rats. Her location was known for a while through electronic emergency beacon signals, but they stopped when the batteries went dead. Unloved and unwanted, Orlova finally slipped beneath the depths at some unknown time. Based on the last sighting, probably it was around March or April 2013. The Glub Glub nickname had finally come true. Well, that's all for now, and thanks for listening. That was a pressurized version of one of our longer episodes. If you enjoyed that and you would like to hear the full length episode, just match the episode numbers and you'll be able to find the full length version in the feed. Thanks for listening. We'll deep see you next time. And I hope to see you all later.